An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our special guest is corporate governance expert, Doug Cha. For those of you not in the corporate governance world, you're in for a treat. And for those of you who are, you already know that. He's just the person I want to talk to today at the beginning of proxy season 2023, as America debates the role of corporations in our society. The National Association of Corporate Directors and the GC Powerlist say Doug is among the most influential people in corporate governance. I can vouch personally that Doug is a sharp-eyed observer of and player in how America's great corporations are his scholarship is renowned, which I appreciate almost as much as his dry sense of humor. After a career in corporate America, Doug runs his own consulting firm, Soundboard Governance. Doug is a former corporate secretary for Johnson & Johnson, executive director of the Conference Board ESG Center, and chair of the board of the Society for Corporate Governance, president of the Stockholder Relations Society of New York, and a member of the New York Stock Exchange Governance Commission. Oh. And while he was in college, Doug was an intern at the White House, helping write speeches for George Bush Sr. Today, he holds fellowships and or teaches at Rutgers Law School, Fordham Law School, the Aspen Institute, and the American College of Financial Services. Welcome, Doug. Thanks, John. Great to be here. So what's your origin story? There are a lot of corporate lawyers, but you've somehow managed to transcend the normal boundaries. I mean, many corporate attorneys don't combine the ability to get into the weeds with, as they say in Boston, being wicked smart. So they get quoted by CNN, NPR, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, Fortune, and even the New Yorker. Though, as far as I can tell, you've yet to be immortalized in a New Yorker cartoon. That said, how did you become the person you are today? Well, let's see. Thank you. I mean, that's very, uh, very kind of you. I, I actually don't see myself as like wicked smat. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of see my path as having, you know, a, a lot of timing and luck. Um, so the origin story of how I became kind of the governance person is that I was a, after law school, I was, uh, I went to a big New York law firm practice securities law. The only reason I fell into that was because I thought I wanted to do international law, which was something I really did not know what it was. It just sounded good. And uh, since I had taught in China between, taught English in China between college and law school, um, you know, the idea was, hey, if I can practice international law, maybe it'll take me somewhere. So I went to a law firm. They had me start with securities offerings. They sent me to Hong Kong. I was in Hong Kong for the internet bubble. Uh, so I saw a lot of companies uh, that tried to go public and I was sitting in due diligence rooms, scratching my head saying, who the heck wants to buy this company? And then the whole thing exploded or imploded 
Then I came back to New York, still practicing securities law. And I hated it. I absolutely hated being a securities lawyer. And so at, at that time, you know, obviously I'm really trying to get out of the law firm life. My wife and I had just had twins and living in New York was getting more expensive and the law firm hours were not conducive to being the kind of father I wanted to be. So Headhunter calls and says, hey, there's a company, Tyco, that uh, just moved to Princeton, New Jersey, and they're looking for someone to be like the assistant secretary. And, you know, you'll recall at the time, this is right after Sarbanes-Oxley had been passed. And there's a provision of Sarbanes-Oxley, Section 404, that was written specifically with Tyco in mind. Um, and all of the disaster that happened there. And so I thought, okay, you know, if I can somehow convince people that I'm like a Sarbanes-Oxley expert, then maybe I can get a job there because nobody's a Sarbanes-Oxley expert. It's a brand new law. So somehow I went out there, I interviewed, you know, I took what people would call like a resume risk by going to a company like Tyco. And that's where I cut my teeth on things like disclosure controls and procedures and internal controls and risk factors from the company perspective. I really liked it. I thought, oh, okay, I'm still like a securities lawyer, but the change of scenery has made quite a bit of a difference. A little while later, Johnson & Johnson came looking for someone with the same services, for the same services with that kind of a background and found me at Tyco. I was only 15 miles down the road in, New, in Princeton, New Jersey, Johnson Johnson's in New Brunswick. They recruited me. At the time, I did my kind of over-analysis of whether I should take this job. My father and other counselors said, it's Johnson & Johnson versus Tyco. This is like, I don't even know why we're having this conversation. You just do it. That's, that's it. Oh, Johnson Johnson's in the pantheon of of corporate America and always will be. And Tyco is, Tyco is Tyco. And so I, I went to Johnson and Johnson and, uh, you know, it's Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, all of the SEC regulations around executive compensation. I rode that wave. And as a result, you know, my career had a very fast trajectory. And eventually I became corporate secretary at Johnson and Johnson before the age of 40. You mentioned Tyco. You mentioned the problems there. Let me let me quote from one academic paper about Tyco. It's amazing what you find quickly on the internet. Fraud, grand larceny, conspiracy, embezzlement, accounting conflicts of interest, excessive unethical personnel spending, and other questionable activities. End quote. That's what you were cleaning up. So, as you're as you're looking at this post. The scandal. Let let me ask you the question that investors want to know: How the hell do I avoid Tyco-like companies pre-Dogcha, pre-cleanup? Are there any indicia that you think outsiders can spot to stay far away from those situations? It's tough because you know I, I think in hindsight we always see the red flags and, you know, the one person who called it and all that kind of stuff. You know, one common theme is be careful when CEOs start getting awards for CEO of the year and showing up on the cover of magazines. 
there seems to be a theme. Andy Fastow, not the CEO, but the CFO, he was awarded C, C, uh, CFO of the year. He actually still has that trophy that he uh, shows people in a very ironic way. Dennis Kozlowski was, you know, declared CEO of the year. The company, if you look at how the company grew and became a darling of Wall Street, they were just gobbling up everything in sight, whether it made sense or not. It was just growth. And I think the investors got addicted to that. And as a result, the company just tried to keep that going. And I, it seems like if you step out of it and think rationally about it, that just doesn't, it's just not going to last. But people rushed in. But I think the, the kind of criminal element, if you will, that's hard to tell. Um, you can tell when something is kind of a business plan that's fraught. But in terms of guys like Kozlowski and Schwartz and, uh, you know, being advised by a lawyer who everyone held in high esteem, but actually was not doing his job, that's very hard to detect. And I think that's part of what, you know, in terms of what we talk about in corporate governance, it's always in hindsight. It's always, well, where was the board? These guys were obviously crooks. You know, that was clear as day. You know, let's point to all these signs. You know, if you're in the car with the person who runs a traffic light, obviously you should fire that person to see it. You know, you, you come up with all these simplistic ways of looking at it, but board members aren't dumb. And as much as you would think you might say that they're zombies and they're not paying attention, it's, it's hard to spot a criminal when someone is really trying to hide it. You know, people want to commit that kind of a crime in a company and they're smart. They will get away with it for quite a while. I think we've seen that. Well, there is one difference and an advantage that you have um, about spotting these sort of situations. I recently gave a master class for preventable surprises on why corporations and investors have different approaches to some issues. And one of the points I made was that Corporate directors and officials know what's going on and in the boardroom and in the C-suite in real time, where investors only find out through disclosures or inference from performance, and those are ex post. When you were honored by GC Powerlist, you said something similar, and I quote, being in the same room, both spectator and participant in corporate decision-making at the highest level gives me a unique window, ex quote. And all this makes the boardroom sound like you know, a song and plotline in Hamilton, being in the room where it happens. What do investors misunderstand or what should investors know about what you see through that window? If it's so hard to even spot a criminal, is there an advantage to being in the room when it happens? Uh, absolutely, there's, uh, there is an advantage. And that's why in terms of the role I play today is a lot of it is just explaining, okay, here's what actually goes on in the room. I can talk about it because I've been there. I'm not affiliated with anyone. So I'm not, you know, uh, in, embarrassing any company or, give, you know, talking out of turn. It's, it's like being in any room or in, in any private discussion where, where big decisions are being made. You can see people in terms of the questions they ask, they come at it from different angles. People play different roles. There's the whole role of body language and culture. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate because it is what every investor would like to understand, to really have that 
fly in the wall experience inside the boardroom while, you know, some major acquisition is being discussed or something like that, but they can't get it. And then they have to settle for disclosure. And so, so, so yeah, I mean, for me, it's fascinating. And I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, when you're in the room, you can see and understand the nuances, these decisions, they seem like they're, some of them are just no brainers or they just missed obvious red flags, but it, it can't be that simple. And because these, these are intelligent people, there's a lot of, there are a lot of factors being considered and there definitely are things that they're going to miss, no doubt about it. And that's why they have counselors there to help them, help them run through all the traps. To me, that's what corporate, corporate governance is. It's ensuring that you have a system in place with processes to essentially not make sure you get to the right answer, but give yourself the best chance of making the right decision. But back to the room where it happened. I mean, this is what frustrates me about corporate disclosure and that we put so much faith into corporate disclosure as if that's really going to give us a view on what happens. It, it just doesn't. I mean, when, when people were calling for more information about board members, we want you know more biographical information and we want the company to explain why is this person in the boardroom? You know, what do they bring to the boardroom? You know, I openly said, look, this disclosure is going to be written by people like me. And I can tell you right now, it's not going to tell you very much more than what you already see. You can only read someone's resume somewhat, so many times and come up with a narrative description of it. it it's still not going to tell you what it thinks it, you think it's going to tell you. Um, and I know that's a, it's a very kind of defeatist or frustrating answer to see or to hear, but sometimes that's, <laughs> those are the kind of answers that I, people like me are there to give to people that, yeah, you're, you're not going to get everything you want. And there's always going to be this massive information asymmetry we see in a lot of places in corporate governance and I, I have some ideas on how to solve this stuff, but, but they kind of go outside the box. Well, go ahead. Tell us the other. I was about to ask you the Doug Cha transparency meter, but um, why don't you tell us your out of the box ideas? In, in terms of the board vis-a-vis -vis the shareholders, the, the, what we've been seeing over the last five to 10 years in terms of more engagement, I, I think that is not the solution, but that's about as close as you're going to get with investors and board members being in the same room or on the same Zoom or whatever, and, and trying to read each other and size each other up. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, you sit down for an in, a job interview with someone and you get to know a lot about that person, but you're not going to get to know everybody, everything. To me, the biggest problem in governance is the inf information asymmetry be between the board and management. And that's where you know, people get frustrated. They're saying, well, the board didn't do their job. You know, obviously they're supposed to monitor these people and they didn't do it. The board does not stand a fighting chance of monitoring management on a lot of things if they don't have the information to do it. And if management is the only one they're relying on to get that information or to get any information, yeah, that there's, there, there's a limit to how well you can do your job. You can spend more time. You could pay the people more. It's not going to solve the problem. So I've come to the conclusion that 
you know, boards are, there's such a pile on effect and, you know, everybody said, okay, you know, the board needs to oversee blank. The board needs more blank experience in the boardroom. At some point, it just, you know, the structure, the, the road is too small for the trucks that you're trying to drive down it. And I think the board needs more resources. These are 12 people, half of whom are retired, who don't have any resources other than the corporate secretary's office and their laptops and search engines. And that's it. I look at the hedge funds and how they support their directors. I have problems with how the hedge funds do this, but I think the basic model makes sense. Board members should have some kind of a staff or the board should have some kind of a staff that is supplying them with information and trying to support their work. Members of Congress have legislative aides. Legislative aides are experts in certain things. And if they're not, they'll bring in an independent expert. They're not going to just take people's word for it, especially, you know, the people you're monitoring. There's got to be some other source of information than, than from the people you're monitoring. Let's leave the structural aspects of the board and let's take the, the, the Doug Chung x-ray specs of what goes on inside of board and cross it with the hot topic today, which is ESG issues. There is a one ES way ESG issues get before a board is through the proxy resolution process. For listeners, that's when an investor who meets certain criteria can ask the company to do something, for instance, adopt a specific climate change policy. When you were at Johnson & Johnson, you got lots of such proposals and you monitor them today. Walk us through what really happens when a shareholder asks the board to do something about anything, climate change, executive compensation, or the like, Assume the investor meets this for the process. Does the suggestion from an outsider get a real hearing, meaning the board discusses the pros and cons, or does a company just immediately try to lawyer it away? Frankly, it's the latter. See, the, the problem here, and I tell my shareholder proponent friends this, is that filing a shareholder proposal to the people who are receiving it, it's as if they received a grenade with the pin pulled already. And, you know, they see it as a declaration of war. And it's like you're firing a live round at them. And their natural reaction is to somehow dodge it or get rid of it. And so, you know, you, the corporate secretary is told, you know, make sure we don't have any proposals on the proxy this year. Do whatever you can to get it out. Negotiate it. Uh, you know, take it to the SEC and get it bumped out um, under the rules. But uh, I, I, the board takes a very cynical view of shareholder proposals. Um, they see it as, you know, either a direct attack or somebody just trying to push a special interest. And I think the, the shareholder proponents, unfortunately, you know, have given them reason to be very skeptical and feel threatened by this. But, but that's why, you know, I think there should, there's got to be a different way than shareholder has a concern, they send in a shareholder proposal, and then you start fighting through the shareholder proposal process. Nothing good comes from that. It's just incredibly unconstructed. And so, you know, folks like, uh, you know, I've worked with our old friend, Meredith Miller, who used to be at the UAW Medical Benefits Trust, to come up with a different way 
of doing this. You know, shareholders have issues. They, there are different ways that they can come at it with the company or even an industry if they have a, a, a problem with a specific industry um, and try to talk it through and try to come to some first common understanding what the problem actually is. Because usually there's a misunderstanding or just ed, there needs to be some education and then figure out, okay, well, what could help? What could the solution be? You're saying clawbacks, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if we, unless we talk it through, we really don't, we really don't know where we're going to come out. Um, the process takes a lot longer. It takes a lot more work. Um, but I think at the end, you get a better result, even if the two sides decide that, okay, we can't agree. We got to walk away on this one. I was going to ask you about the state of America vis-a-vis ESG with the backlash, but um, to be honest, I'm tired of talking about it, and you probably are also. So I want to ask you a related but much broader topic, um, and I think ultimately one that has more impact and is longer lasting. Many, particularly American companies, are so large that they're almost quasi-governmental. They can't help but affect the lives of workers and communities. What Facebook does affects elections. What Tesla does affects emissions. What Microsoft does affects cybersecurity, not just for companies, but vis-a-vis anti-terrorist protection for the United States. And we've dumped so many responsibilities onto businesses, particularly in the U.S., that elsewhere are governmental functions. Think about retirement savings and healthcare, which in the U.S. are employment-related. And at the same time, as High Meadows Institute has noted, most CEOs and boards of directors are not trained for these high-profile, quasi-political, quasi-governmental roles. You've observed this and written somewhat about it. How do you see all this evolving over, over the long term? Do, do, does come, do companies get better at it? Do we take these roles away from companies? Do we continue to muddle through? I think companies can get better at it. And I think we're seeing that, you know, at least, you know, when we talk about kind of the recent movement back to the shareholder or the stakeholder model of governance, you know, that is the idea that the company is trying to get better at managing all these different things and not just saying, okay, all we really care about is stock price. We're not going to get involved in these other things. So, so I think that that helps in that it shifts the thinking of uh, those in charge in terms of, okay, we've got responsibilities here. You know, with great power comes great responsibility, to quote Spider-Man's uncle, I believe. And so the powers that be, the business roundtable, as a proxy for that, they, they get that. Now, you could question their sincerity, but there's got to be something behind it. There's got to be something behind what Larry Fink's saying. It's not just all marketing. So I think right there, just a mind shift helps, but there are limits. There are definitely limits to this. And the, you know, CEOs get paid to grow the business and hopefully the stock price goes up. They don't get paid based on how, how great a place the world is to live. Part of the problem and why I don't see it getting much better or shifting away from the influence of the corporation is because corporations are filling a void where government has 
fallen down on the job and just essentially does not do their job anymore. There's a reason why this has happened over the last, you know, five, six years. It's because government is so dysfunctional that there needs to be leadership in, on certain things. Things just need to get done. And if government's not going to do it, somebody else will step in. And corporations are in a position to do that. And certain corporate, I call them corporate titans, they, they see it as their role to, to fill that void. And you know we've seen this throughout history. Today, corporations are so big and so multinational that they have this type of a power. How do you keep that in check? I'm not exactly sure. I think, you know, it's up to people like us and to the general public and the media to keep these people in check. I don't think politicians do a good job of keeping them in check at all. And, you know, with this anti-ESG, which we won't get into, we can see, you know, kind of the, the two at loggerheads. Let me ask you a personal question. You're Asian American and you've written about the catch-22 of Asian Americans being seen on the one hand, as a, quote, model minority, end quote, you know, having achieved high levels of education, socioeconomic status, and so don't often get considered as part of DEI efforts. Yet there is a, what is now being called, I guess, a bamboo ceiling, as well as more recently, or not even so recently, go back to World War II as well, anti-Asian violence and other forms of racism. Can you go a little into more detail on that and how you've encountered such discrimination personally? I think people don't understand that Asians have a very different experience in this country. It's an immigrant, immigrant group that's been in the country for quite a long time, and they don't teach this in school. They don't, maybe, maybe in school you learn about the Japanese internment uh, during World War II, a very you know, unfortunate and uh, shameful period of our history, but they don't learn about things like the Chinese Exclusion Act and Fred Korematsu and all of these other important moments that, you know, these were Asian specific incidents or uh, events. And, you know, so we learn a lot about the civil rights movement. And, you know, I, I think that we have to understand that each minority group in this country has had a different experience and that the Asian experience is unique. And it's not just, okay, people come over here, they, you know, they pull themselves up by their bootstraps, they go to Harvard, they go to Harvard Law School, and then they're successful people. There's a lot of discrimination that people just don't see, they don't understand, they don't get. And even a very, you know, well-off, successful Asian person or, or any person, any, any minority in this country can be discriminated against, and, and, and they are, just based on their appearance or their surname. And so it's, it's more complicated than people make it out to be. Um, I think people would point to me, people like me, and say, hey, look, you know, you made it. Uh, you seem to be doing fine. I'd say that's not, that's not the whole story. And in terms of, but, but I think it's getting better. You know, I explained to my kids, I tell them stories about how I got bullied and harassed and all kinds of things when I was growing up and going to school and they don't have to deal with that right now. And, you know, they're surprised when they hear me say all this stuff and they, they actually quite taken aback, but I explained to them, well, 
it's it's good that we we need now live in a place and send you to a school where these kind of things don't happen anymore. And that's progress. But it still happens in a lot of parts of the country. A lot of us, like you know, me, live in a bubble where we don't we aren't as exposed to it. But yeah, it's very disturbing to hear. And I think there's a lot of denial in this country in terms of people, they just don't want to believe it. They want to say it's it's overblown or yeah, th- this is just more, you know, whining from people who are already, already doing fine. So it, it's a very complicated issue, but I do think Asians often get left out of the discussion or forgotten about. And I've had to remind some people about that in the corporate governance world while they're talking about board diversity. And I don't think they really like the fact that I'm bringing it up, but once I, you know, bug them about it, I don't think they forget. <laughs> Is that what you're focusing on right now? Or what's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about and why? There are things I'm passionate about, but I don't, it's not passionate in a very positive way necessarily. There are things that get me energized, like this whole anti-ESG debate that we're having. You know, I, I can get really into this type of a discussion but it, a lot of it is just out of sheer frustration at what is going on, but it gets me going. How do you relax? I'm not sure I actually relax. I, I think there are different things that I enjoy to get my mind off of things. I guess wa- drinking beer and watching the Yankees is probably what I would say is what I do to relax, which uh, you know paints a certain image of me that might be surprising to some people. The way I look at it is, I, there are certain things I enjoy to really, yeah, get my mind off of corporate governance and things that frustrate me or just get the things that make me, you know, there are things that I do that make me happy. And the thing that does that for me the most is watching my kids live their lives. I just find it fascinating and just so enjoyable to watch them overcome obstacles or interact with each other, interact with their friends. When we're watching, we're, we sit around watching TV or watching movies. I'm watching the, the, the TV program with them, but I'm also just watching them watch the TV program. And that gives me such joy to watch them, you know, laugh at the jokes or make off the cuff remarks or when we're watching Survivor, they're giving up play by play and talking about, you know, oh, here's who they should vote off. And I think that's to me, just having a front row seat to their childhood is what gives me extreme joy. What are you reading right now? I, I have a number of books in progress, one of which is a memoir of the former corporate secretary of Merck, Geraldine Ritter. She was in the front passenger car of the train that derailed in Philadelphia a number of years ago. She almost died. She had a very long road back to recovery. And this is her memoir uh, about her struggle and the fact that she she's she's back now. She's working as a general counsel. And, you know, to me, that's just hearing about what she went through is, is gut-wrenching, but it also kind of makes me think, gee, I, I'm not sure I would have been able to do that. 
and I'm not sure I would be going back to work at this point. The fact that she's gone back and is doing great things in the workplace is just, you know, it's inspirational and it's also, it's just awe-inspiring because, yeah, again, it's kind of like, I'm not sure I'm made of the same stuff. So I've just got to admire someone who is and privileged to, to know this person as, as a friend. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? I would tell them, do it for the kids. Make a kid happy. Set the world up in a place or set your part of the world up in a way that lets kids flourish and realize their full potential. Yeah, that I kind of, kind of think as adults, that's really all we can do <laughs> um, is, it's, is make things good for the next generation. Thanks. You've been listening to our special guest, Doug Cha, on Outside In with John Lutomnik. Doug, thanks so much for sharing. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.